It is truly my, my privilege to be able to share with you in this context and very much my pleasure. And that pleasure stems from the fact that over the last three years, Mary and I have been greatly enriched by our fellowship together. And if I may think of you all as the ZPC family, you have been that to us. And, and so I am, am very grateful for this opportunity this, this morning, although Jerry's first word to me this morning is, uh, Stan, you're going to be a legend. This will be your second and last time preaching. So I said, okay, thank you, Jerry. And Jerry typically, when it comes to parish associates, spells the word with an E. Thank you for some of you. But it is truly a privilege to be a part of this worshiping community and truly my pleasure this morning to share with you from now from the book of Daniel chapter 3. This morning then does mark our fourth Sunday in the book of Daniel. You might recall that three Sundays ago, Jerry from Daniel chapter 1 spoke to us in terms of our covenant children and how they, like Daniel and his friends, were being shaped by the culture and therefore our responsibility for our children in recognizing how they are being shaped. Then two Sundays ago, Randall shared with us Again, from the latter half of Daniel chapter 1, Randall shared with us in terms of the secret of living a blessed life, and then he added that little phrase, in a cursed realm, and provided us insight then as to how to live a blessed life within a cursed world. Last Sunday, Scott shared with us from chapter 2, and very much focused upon Daniel and his three friends, and and reminded us of of Daniel in terms of his bold humility, bold humility, as that was in relationship to Daniel's prayer life and the ushering in of the great kingdom of God. This morning, then, we will focus upon the third chapter in Daniel. But, But before we do that, and really we're not going to focus on Daniel this morning, it's his three friends, but before we do that, I I have a question for you, and the question is this, how many Jews live in our world presently? What would you say? And I'm giving you four choices, 16 million, 42 million, 61 and 77 million. But this also I would like you to do. I would like you to turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, go ahead, say it. Neighbor. Neighbor. Try it again. Let's get this neighbor. Oh, good. That's better. All right. And so then I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, how many Jews live in our world today? And then with your neighbor, I want you to decide, is it 16 million, 42 million, 61 million, or 77 million? I will give you 30 seconds. Go to your neighbor and ask the question.
You have 10 more seconds. I don't know what this means, but the nine o'clock service was quicker than you all. <laughs> now, that also might mean that you were talking about other things than the Jews living in the world. That's a possibility as well. How many of you thought it was 16 million? Okay. How many of you think 42 million? A few more, maybe. How many 61? Ah, more yet. What about 77? Whoa, well, over here, but not over here. Approximately 16 million. Approximately 16 million, actually a little less than that. Now, you will see yet another slide. And on this slide, what this slide indicates are the number of Jews who have received a Nobel Prize. And what you will observe there is that there has been an inordinate number of Jews who have been so honored. My question with regard to how many live presently in the world and my observation regarding the Nobel, Pre Nobel Prizes is, is that I'm not seeking to make a political but rather a faith statement, and it is this. As the Lord God of creation blessed Abraham, blessed to be a blessing, so the world, our world indeed, has been blessed by his offspring, the Nobel Prizes indicative of that. And yet, their history, the history of those people, Abram's offspring, has been a history whereby the world repeatedly and consistently has sought to annihilate them and or their cultural presence. Thus for them, and I trust for us, the Daniel stories were, are, intended to encourage perseverance and faithfulness, even amid alienation and oppression. Now, I do not think that you and I really know too much about certain forms of alienation and oppression, but we have brothers and sisters throughout the world who at this very moment know much about alienation and oppression because they see and understand themselves in terms of the kingdom of God. This morning I invite you, as based upon Daniel chapter 3, I invite you to ponder afresh the question Whose face, whose face, as based upon that well-known account of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But first, if you will, please join me in yet a further moment of prayer. Let's pray.
Living Lord, we ask that in these moments, we will hear from you. Yours is the voice we need to hear, not mine. Yours are the words, not mine. In these moments, give us ears to hear. And then once we hear, please may we have the will to do what it is that you ask us to do. This we quite sincerely ask in your great and wonderful name. Amen. As you no doubt know or recall, our, our storyline really is quite simple. But I better read the scripture before we can talk about the storyline, right? True, Trudy? Okay, that'll be good. And there we go. Our scripture is taken then from Daniel chapter 3. I've abbreviated it, the, the first 20 verses. Listen now to and for the word of God as it comes to us from this particular chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was six cubits. He set it up on the plain in Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent for the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. When they did, the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not obey and were brought before the king, and then we read further. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods? And you do not worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now, if you are ready to fall down and worship the statue that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, if our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. He ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. As you well know, our storyline is simple. King Nebuchadnezzar gifted his kingdom and the world with a statue which he then called his various leaders from his far-flung kingdom to dedicate by their worship. However, three of his leaders, three from Judah, refused to bend the knee before the statue. Informed of their disobedience, Nebuchadnezzar exhibited forbearance, offering the three an opportunity to, to recant. The three refused his magnanimous offer, eliciting the king's great ire, his wrath, his rage, and compelling him to order their execution, incineration. Now, my recounting here, as you know, is not the full story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were joined by a fourth in that furnace. They came out of that furnace without a hair singed. And then they heard Nebuchadnezzar make this decree. Any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruin. For there is no God who is able to deliver in this way. Not only is my rendering of this story really very prosaic, it does not have the vibrancy of the original text, and it certainly does not have the repetitive quality of the original. For instance, how many times do we need to know, need to hear, the listing of the king's official leadership, or the enumeration of the musical instruments, or, or the recitation of, of what might occur in the face of disobedience. And yet, as I pondered this account once again, as I pondered its stylistic devices, I concluded that I was in the presence of a great imaginative storyteller, and that his repetitions were intentional. Thus I observed that four times our author used the verb 
to pay reverence to. That five times he wrote of the fiery furnace. That nine times he used the verbal combination to fall down and worship. That in 11 times he used the word statue, even as 11 times he noted that Nebuchadnezzar set up the statue. And that 17 times he referred to King Nebuchadnezzar, 17 times in 20 verses. Statistically, our passage then is about Nebuchadnezzar, a statue, and worship. Now, I know that some of you are probably thinking, well, yeah, I could have told you that. There's no rocket science here. And you're right. But if our passage is about Nebuchadnezzar, a statue, and worship, then of a sudden, his words of verse 15 shout to us. If you three do not worship, Nebuchadnezzar said, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire, and who is the God that can deliver you from my hands? To Jewish ears, and I hope to ours, Nebuchadnezzar's words are blasphemous. Essentially, he now claimed to be greater than any god or any pantheon of gods. Moreover, and this is to me one of the curious features of our passage, we cannot be certain whether the statue was that of a Babylonian god or of Nebuchadnezzar himself. However, the word translated statue is the Hebrew word selam. There it is. That word can also be translated as image or face. As in verse 19, where we read, Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage that his, got it, that his face, that his selam, that his image was distorted. Now, I know that some of you came this morning to hone your Hebrew skills, right? So I'm going to give you opportunity. Those of you who are, who are really not interested, you will humor the rest of us. But that, that word then, we read from right to left, and it's the letter Sadath, Lameth, and Mam, right? Correct. And we pronounce it Selim. So go ahead, pronounce it Selim. Oh, a little more energy. Selim. Oh, yeah, isn't that a great word? Selim. So you can see face and statue. It's all right there. Selim. 
So I knew some of you would be excited. If nobody, I knew at least that Jerry and Scott would be, right? Oh yes, they were, they were waiting for this moment. Sell him, sell him. His face was distorted. I cannot prove, but I would strongly suggest that the statue Nebuchadnezzar gifted the world bore his image. But even if it did not, he expected to be worshipped as a god and therefore continued that family tradition instituted by Adam and Eve who although created in the Thank you, Selim, that's right. Although created in the Selim, in the image of God, chose disobedience in order to be like God. Sin never makes sense. Selim. Our passage is indeed about Nebuchadnezzar's godlike pretensions. But it is also about worship. And you might recall that the word worship comes from the old English word, which has to do with worthiness. And it indicates what and or for whom we might offer sacrifice, worship. For the three from Judah... Only the Lord God of creation, the Lord God of Israel, warranted such an offering, such a sacrifice. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, they said, subtext, he is, let him deliver us. But if not, O king, we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue. Now, if you will, and you've humored me so far, shift with me. In his little volume entitled The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis considered the Greek words, four Greek words, that we translate by one word, the word love. They are the word agape, I think you know that one, eros, storge is one we're not particularly familiar with, and then the fourth word is philia, such as Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Lewis argued that the first of these, agape, reflects the sacrificial freeing love of God our creator. Whereas he, ag- whereas he argued that the natural loves, the other three, and Lewis, by the way, was a great champion of the natural loves. He argued that the other three, the loves of romance, family, and friendship, are to be understood in light of this particular quote, love ceases to be a demon only when he ceases to be a god. Denise 
de Rogemont was a French theologian of the mid-20th century. Lewis took that line, love ceases to be a demon only when he ceases to be a god. That is, the love of romance, of parent-child, of friend. If that love becomes a god, assumes the throne of the Lord God of all, becomes the center of one's worship, one's sacrifice, at that moment such a love assumes the aspect and the power of a demon. I know this is very strong language, but I use it to lead us to that fundamental question. For what? For whom? Are you willing to sacrifice? Or more precisely, whom do you worship? A child? A parent? A cause? A country? A spouse, a girlfriend, a colleague, a neighbor, a dream, a tradition, whatever or whomever, when he, she, or it, or they become a god rather than the triune god of creation, at that moment, he, shit, he, she, it, or they will prove to be counterproductive or destructive. Again, I know this is strong. Ah, but one further facet pertains. Who? Who determines whether or not something or someone is worthy of our lives. Is it not the sacred trinity of me, myself, and I? Do we not? Do I not? Do our egos not desire to reign, to be honored and praised, and yes, to be obeyed? Before whose face, Selim, before whose face will you bow down and worship? Might it be your own? Narcissus, Nebuchadnezzar, they're not the only ones who have that problem. I believe that one day we will be confronted with a single question, although it is a question that I think we encounter daily. One day, we will hear our Lord 
ask either my will, either my will be done, or your will. Mine, thine. Which will it be? I do not know about you, but I know. I know me. And I know that I wrestle with that question daily. Whom will I serve? Who is worthy of my sacrifice? And am I seeking to establish me as worthy of worship? I hope not. I know these are sobering questions. I invite you with me as we live this day and the week before us to live with those questions. If you will, please pray with me. Gracious living Lord, we, we thank you that you are gracious and that you are the living one. And that indeed you do receive us as we are, even amid some of our pretensions. So often we are those whose spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. So often we seek to follow you, to worship you, to bow before you, to honor you, to praise you. And yet, we then tend to desire the same for ourselves. Help us. Help us to rightly direct ourselves to you. And by so directing, rightly direct ourselves to those loved ones about us. You are the one worthy of anything that we have to give. Please take us. Please take our offering for your sake. In this, sincerely, we ask in your great and wonderful name. Amen.